WCBN FM Ann Arbor. Thank you so much, Sashay Del Monaco. This is Reverend Andrew. I am sitting in for Living Writers. We have a pre-recorded show by uh, its uh, interview with uh, Michelle Okadoner, if I'm hopefully pronouncing that right. Uh, and so we're going to start playing that now. It's going to run a little short, so we'll have to tack on 10 or 15 minutes of music at the end. But I got plenty of time to pick stuff out. Uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Here's the show.
Good afternoon. You've got living writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today I'm so pleased. I've been looking forward to this. I've got Michelle Oka Donor in the studio here. We're taping the program. It's October 25th, 2016. And Michelle, you're going to be, you're here in town with your, your latest art project. Um, you'll be at Literati. Um, and they'll be available. These these photo books will be there for people to go and find them. Um, welcome, welcome back to Ann Arbor. It's so great to be here and such a beautiful day. And of course, I got up early and walked the campus and found many familiar things and some new things. Because you came as an undergrad back in 1963? Correct. So what were some of the familiar things? Like, where did your walk take you? Where did you go first? I walked down, I guess it was South University. And when I passed the Union, even though I wasn't here when John F. Kennedy as president pronounced the uh, Peace Corps should exist and people ran off and went everywhere. And <laughs> they came back after two years when I arrived. That was 61, which is how I felt so involved. And But I conjured that up. I felt, oh, there's where it happened. There's where he stood. Which step was he on? Oh. And then I crossed to the law quad and missed the elms, but saw the maples and other trees growing. And then I went by Lorch Hall, which was the old school of art, but not before I walked by Dominic's. Oh. And <laughs> Did you have a, a quick sangria? <laughs> no, but we used to meet three schools, the business school, the law, law school, and the school of uh, architecture and design, all converged on Dominic's hmm. for what we called hairy donuts. Those were coconut donuts. <laughs> <laughs> they had donuts there. I wonder, I don't know if they still have hairy donuts there, though, Michelle, no. It was only a morning coffee place and a oh. bite for lunch. Oh. And they had a wonderful unfinished painting along the wall. Dominic was Greek and not very affluent, and he was pulling this off really by the, they say, the skin of his teeth, you know. <laughs> he had a student paint three um, existential-looking seekers who cried, A tu la mode, e si, a tu la mode, e cri, and then there was a colon, and you never knew what they said. <laughs> So, <laughs> I wonder if it's still like that. I think I looked once and it was gone and that oh. he covered it up. What he did was everything that came down around the school in that area, he salvaged. And that's how he built Dominic's. I bet there's the remains of 10 different <laughs> university buildings in it. in it as well. And maybe some wall hanging, some pieces of art. I, I think there is a, there is definitely a piece of 60s sculpture embedded in the front. And then I walked to Lorch Hall, and the entrance I always took, which had a graffiti also, Mies lives for you. 
but I was from Miami Beach where we had Tropical Deco and Morris Lapidus, so I didn't know who Mies van der Rohe was at the age of 17, and I said, who's Mouse? They said, oh, Mies, that's Mies. So that's been gone a while, and we went around the other entrance and found the original lobby I was able to go upstairs and find the old library. The old library is a that's a great I think a secret a somehow secret. not everyone knows about it. And then by Martha Cook and I wondered when the old magnolia was taken away. Mm. These are the mysteries. But perk up, the engine arch was still there and <laughs> <laughs> walked through that and discovered two things today that make me extremely satisfied. One is that Raoul Wallenberg was here as a student of architecture and design, and it was a plaque in the lobby Mm. from 1975. So that was, they did not move that from the building over to North Campus. And secondly, in the engine arch is a historical um, plate that says we're the first public university to teach engineering, and it listed 10 different engineerings, beginning with naval and even um, molecular, nuclear, things you never heard of that engineers do. And I was thinking, this is wonderful, because the School of Architecture and Design was curated out of engineering in 1920, And then the School of Art was curated out of the School of Architecture uh, a bit later. So this is the, the, our parents, our grandparents were these engineers. Right. So it was very wonderful and even profound to stand there and understand that the people who taught me came out of this and this was the beginning of structure, the pyramids, et cetera. It seems like as you were walking around, Michelle, that you saw layers of life. I saw the university as it accreted. And I also went, walked into Tappan Hall and saw the wonderful sculpture against the wall. It's a bas-relief in bronze of President Tappert, the first president of the university, with his basset hound. And... It really wasn't him. It was Bismarck that they were conjuring up. And I know this because I saw a sculpture of Bismarck with a whole article on how this sculpture here was taken from that because we're modeled on Heidelberg. The university? Yes. Now, you know that probably uh, Yale and Harvard are modeled on Cambridge and Oxford. But this university is the German model. But do you think Tappan was okay with his his bronzing being of Bismarck and not his own visage? (laughs) It could have been that they put his visage in the the composition was Bismarck, the dog was Bismarck, the bearing and the way it was done. It could have been his face. And he might not have even seen it. This could have been oh. put in after he passed away. As a tribute. As a tribute. 
And and you mentioned JFK being on the steps um, a couple of years before you were coming here. Only twenty four months and maybe less, you know. But you, this isn't your your first intersection with JFK because your father, as mayor of Miami Beach, actually met with. That's correct. It's amazing. You you do your research. It's true. He was still a senator, and Jackie was pregnant with. Uh, I guess it was um, John John. And my mother had to take her for lunch while my father had JFK speaking. It was the convention of mayors, and it took place in Miami Beach. And in the history of social history of Miami Beach that I wrote with Mitchell Wolfson Jr., whose father was also mayor, so we had archives that should see the light of day. They were shot for public record. And Back also, to the 1920s, wasn't it? From yes. From the 1920s through the 60s? Yes. And this, what was the book called? Miami Michelle? Beach Blueprint of an Eden. And since both Mickey and I were interested in architecture and design, the blueprint word was, was it's snappy. Nice, snappy, yes. But Miami Vice and Cocaine Cowboys and Scarface was everybody's impression of Miami Beach. So you you just dispelled it, though. Yes, part of this book was well. Wait a minute, nature, nature, and yes, public an eye for public life, not just me life or so. So between our our fathers, Mickey's father and my father, we had a section on presidents that went from Truman to. Pat Nixon, Eisenhower, um, Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, Kennedy, and we stopped the book actually November 1963, the end of an era. Well, you know what? Let's take a short break, and then we'll come back, and we'll talk more. We're going to hear another song that Michelle Oka Donor picked for our program today. And then we're going to talk about the book, the photo book on the table with us, Into the Mysterium. I'm T. Hetzel. You've got Living Writers. We've got the Liz Engineering. We'll be right back. Thank you. 
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, I'm glad you did. Today on the program, Michelle Oka Donor is here um, in the studio, and we've got her most recent uh, book, a photo book, Into the Mysterium, here on the table with us. My sense of this, Michelle, is that you and I could have many great conversations <laughs> Almost all at once. <laughs> That's what they call an orgy. <laughs> That's connecting back to the Miami Vice of That's the correct. previous quarter. Um, but, but let's see. Maybe, you know what? I'm going to put the brakes on for a second for this conversational orgy <laughs> and, and actually read your bio because I feel like I would be remiss a little bit. Um, just to give listeners um, a, a bit of a more comprehensive, a small window into it, and then we'll talk more and fill in life stories and talk about the, the beautiful photo book here. Um, Michelle Okadona is an internationally renowned artist whose career spans five decades. The breadth of her artistic production encompasses sculpture, furniture, jewelry, public art, functional objects, video and costume, set design, and books. Donor's work is fueled by a lifelong study and appreciation of the natural world. She is well known for creating dozens of public art installations throughout the U.S., including the mile-long A Walk on the Beach at Miami International Airport, seen by over ooh, 40 million travelers a year. Could that be possible? It's possible. <laughs> it's probable. It's probable. <laughs> That's an important. Well, we'll get. We'll talk about. I'd love to talk about that piece. Represented by Marlboro Gallery, Oka Donor's work is found in the collections of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, Whitney Museum of American Art, Art Institute of Chicago, Musée des Arts. Decoratifs. Oh, I need to get some French or so, right? The oh, the Louvre, <laughs> uh, Victoria and Albert Museum, University of Michigan Museum of Art, Go Blue, Yale Art Gallery, and Princeton University Art Museum, and many others. Awards include the Award of Excellence, UN Society of Writers and Artists, Pratt Legends, Artist in Residence, American Academy in Rome, New York State Council of the Arts grant, and an honorary Doctor of Fine Arts degree from the University of Michigan just this this last graduation 2016 very exciting Mike Bloomberg spoke so beautifully and poignantly wow. it's great and well you came here we mentioned in the first quarter as an undergrad and then you stayed and you you got your MFA here as well correct it was what we call the 60s it was a very <laughs> exciting time and I stayed here in school uh, five years and remained a year as I set up a studio. And it was a very fertile time. The studio I set up was uh, downtown, and several people from KSM Industries had opened up a framing shop as a front in order to create the first hologram in art, which they did by grabbing one of my pieces. And then there was an exhibition at the Cranbrook Museum. So all these things were happening artistically, politically, cross-fertilization between science and art, which we now think we've invented, but was going on 50 years ago here. Right. So there was no way I wanted to leave, so I just stayed in school. <laughs> that sounds like a wise choice. And you're... you're um was it your thesis project? Was it 
tattooed porcelain dolls? Well, that was, uh, yes, in, they began in my undergrad years. The assignment, by the way, was to throw three jars and make lids. But huh. somehow, somehow I wandered. <laughs> and It's good to wander. Somehow I didn't get reprimanded. I turned in one jar with a very bad fitting lid and then showed these other pieces. It was a moment when Peter Volkus was breaking out on the West Coast. Things were happening, and there was a young teaching fellow as well as my professor, and they all kind of laughed, and nobody said, you can't do that or where's your other stuff, and I just kept at it. it things just, the water kept parting, I guess, everywhere in the university. It wasn't just the School of Art, and it was a wonderful time. And you were on the cover of, um, was it Generation, Generation, a magazine? Campus Magazine. A lot of things happened very quickly. I was ready to have uh, be a part of a change, and I really think the Midwest was the reason why things happened here and Wisconsin, uh, you know, that campus too, was there was more space than there mm -hmm. were in places that were already so tightly filled. You know, the East Coast itself, which was very rich in university life, it was already highly constructed. These were wide open places. How did you decide to come from Miami Beach to Michigan? Was it for the space? Was it to explore another part of the natural world? Was it some instinct? It was really an instinct. I grew up, as you mentioned, as the mayor's daughter, and I knew all 60,000 people in Miami Beach and their grandmothers who came to visit. You know, it was a small town. My father had gone to Harvard, my mother to Hunter, my sister was at Columbia, and I thought, I don't want to go to Sarah Lawrence or Bennington where arty girls went. Mm -hmm. Something about a big place to get lost. It was co-ed. Ann Arbor, that's a beautiful trees, you know. Oh, right. Something so nice about even Ann Arbor. Mm. So I applied. I told my mother I was going to Ann Arbor to college. <laughs> and they didn't say anything. And when I got in, it was done. I was so excited. I never looked at the school. I flew, Willow Run was open at the time, and took a car in, and during that drive past crops growing by the roadside. I'd never seen the Midwest. I'd never seen corn growing. It was so <laughs> thrilling. <laughs> and then, of course, fall came, and it was beautiful to see the leaves, because that beautiful. would be very different from a Miami Beach um, experience of the seasons. Beautiful. Yeah. And the first day of snow, I was in one of those fourth floor studios that was made famous by Lewis Mumford in his book of essays. He said that Lorch Hall was the most beautiful school of architecture in the country, and he published a photograph. And I looked out of those windows and saw flakes and I started making animal noises. And the teacher said, what's going on? And the kid said, she's never seen snow. So he said, well, go, go out. And I did. I went out into the Martha Cook yard and 
could ran around. And with the flakes falling on your skin and it, your, yeah. It was very exciting. Oh, well, that, I love that. I, that's such a wonderful image. Well, let's, 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 we could talk about Michigan forever, but I don't mean to keep us locked into this one part of your life. Um, I feel like we should... I feel like we should go and look at the photo book now. Yes, how we did, can go into the Mysterium. Let's go. Let's go. Um, so how did this project start for you? We we know that you were born and raised in Miami Beach. You have a deep connection to the, the place, the land, the people. Can you tell us a little bit about this project? I had another book that was published for working drawings for the airport. The airport project was 20 years. 20 years. And during, it started in 1990 with, a, with being commissioned and doing proposal drawings. And over the years, uh, many waxes were picked up from the studio and I found that the foundry sprayed them with something that's illegal now. Uh, it's a dicom spray, a blueprint spray. It was quite beautiful and it bled on the craft paper, so it looks so gorgeous, like an aura. And every wax in the every wax that became a bronze in the airport uh, had a, a, a pattern, a spray, a template. So that way, if I said, "Now wait a minute," I'm sure when I sent this wax to the foundry, it had three extensions, <laughs> not two. They could tell me, "Oh, here's the number. It's number three thousand four hundred and twenty." Let's go get that piece of paper that sprayed. There were hundreds of pieces of paper that had each one many, many uh, beautiful patterns that were exciting for me to see all over again, reimagined. So I published a book called Workbook, and then I decided to identify everything. Let's take a short break, Michelle, because that seems like... Then we're going to get into the meat and potatoes of these invertebrates, right? Correct. <laughs> yes. um, today on Living Writers, Michelle Oka Donor is here into the Mysterium, the photo book on the table with us. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm glad you did today. Michelle Oka Donor is here in the studio. Her photo book, Into the Mysterium, here before us. Um, we're getting to the origin of this project. I took 
the uh, book of working drawings, and I realized they needed to have captions so that people would see all these wonderful things that are under the water that are not only beautiful, but they're life forces. They're real, and without them, we don't have life. They're really primary, not stuff. So I honored them with captions, and then I realized I want a marine biologist to be able to read this and not snort and corkle and say, she said it's a what when it's a this. So I called the dean of the Rosenstiel School of Marine Biology at the University of Miami, Dr. Robert Ginsburg, who was my new best friend after seeing the airport floor, and he said, I have just the person for you. Nancy Voss. Nancy Voss. <laughs> So I bring the manuscript to Nancy Voss, and she looks at me, and she said, well, she'd been there since 1951, working in the same office. You can imagine how diligent she was. Right. And she said, dear, this is not an algae. It's an alga. Singular. <laughs> <laughs> so, how could you, Michelle? How could you? <laughs> so after she corrected my manuscript, I turned around and faced 90,000 specimen jars filled with almost a million specimens. And I said to her, would it be possible, would you mind if I looked around a little? And she thought for a moment and she said, well, I suppose not. So then I got up and looked around, and then I had the courage to say to her, and here I am, a grown woman. I was like, what was I? I was in my late 50s or something. I said, would it be possible for me to come back with a camera? Well, I suppose so. So it took me a year to figure out what kind of camera would be required to set aside a week, and I returned in 2006, and it was just an extraordinary experience. She allowed me to remove jars from their shelves, put them on the cart, wheel them in. I had a Petri dish. I had a black screen. I could also work by the window where light came in. And it was so thrilling to be able to open up this world and have access to things that you can't even dream about. You you can't see and know. Or maybe you do dream about them, but to actually locate them in the real world, then you can feel more connected to it somehow. It's true. Well, the million specimens defy the imagination. I mean, it is, and some of the things, or many of them, are not identified, which irritated her because she wasn't she's 86 now and she hasn't finished her work mm. so that tells you what's there there's spe specimens species things that that are so extraordinary and yet unnamed and they bring in scientists from all over the Caribbean basin it's very I've never been there when there's been one. It's not that active. Oh. Basically, she's there by herself six days a week. What's going to happen when she retires? That is the question. And is that one of the reasons why you also wanted to preserve it 
in this way, like to give well, it an once, impression of it? Yes. Once I took, I have 400 pictures. This is 80. The book is 80. Once I took the pictures, once I had gone back and spent the week, all those questions came up. What's going to happen? And where is it going? So now, ironically, from nursery school, I have a friend who has sponsored. I haven't seen her in years, but we started Polo Park Nursery School together, and then we're in Brownies, Girl Scouts, etc. cetera. Uh, she sponsors a lunch at the Rosensteel School every year. And this year it's coming up November 10th, and it's featuring Michelle and Nancy and the Mysterium. And what I'm hoping, I invited everyone I knew who has supported my work and who's involved with the university on a trustee level so that that brings attention to her, to this Marine Invertebrate Museum. That's the real name. Marine so, Invertebrate Museum. And I've written a letter to the president, and I had trustees who've written letters, and he's now aware of her. And there'll be an exhibition next year opening in the fall at the University of Miami Lowe Museum that will have a symposium of art and science. So she's going to be everywhere and... And recognized. Recognized, correct. So, and will she bring then for this symposium? Will parts of the will these jars be out for the public to see? Will they emerge from the museum? I'm very curious as to how far that little cart will be allowed to roll. <laughs> <laughs> well, because then there because light could damage it, or you know, you'd probably be worried. But well, things had already happened when I went back. Um, last time. For example, there's not enough people to fill the jars with alcohol. So Is it evaporating? It evaporates, oh, no. even though they have lids, right. and then things had lost their color in the 10 years. I couldn't find things, and then I realized, yes, this is it. It just doesn't look, look the, the same. same. So this document turns out to also be very timely, and um, certainly they should name something for her. Right. And certainly these jars, somebody needs to come in and make it something other and appreciate it on a level of the world we're losing today of species. This has not been addressed and it's something, it's, it's time. Now the new president is from Mexico. He is um, meta of the University of yeah, Miami. Miami. Okay. He his his background is medical, which means microscopes and things like that. And he's open to it. Donna mm. Shalala was the past president and she really pushed sports and had a different mission. So it looks better. How's that? And if it, cause it's, if it's a museum, it seems like it should be open so people can come and interact with at least some of the, the specimens. Yes. And she named it that, which is so interesting. It's called mm -hmm. the Museum of Invertebrate, um, Miami Invertebrate Museum. So that's her name. Mm. So... It's so exciting to be in there. I can't begin to tell you the different jars have things that 
look like they're out of horror movies, some right, of them, with right. the claws and arms. and Well, even some of the photographs, in a beautiful way, look shocking or and magical. But yes. how you present... Maybe... When we come back after the break, Michelle, maybe you can tell us how you chose the 80 photos to include. Does that seem like a place to start? Absolutely. I feel like I fear we're running out of time together, though. (laughs) We'll take a short break and we'll be right back. Today on the program, Michelle Oka Donor is here. Her photo book, Into the Mysterium. We'll be right back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel today on the program. Michelle Oka-Donor is here, into the Mysterium, on the table with us. Even looking at the cover right now, Michelle, um, it's. I know that it's a flat surface, but it doesn't look flat. The textures you've captured in these images and the light is, is so is beautiful. There's a lot of depth. Those jellyfish, different flaps on the cover almost look like curtains. They look like the scrim curtains parting so you can see the the underworld, what you can't see. Is that why you chose this for the cover image? That's why the cover image is is so mysterious, really. How did you come up with the title? Somewhere along the line, going back and forth to visit Nancy, I I had nicknamed it. You know, that wasn't my only visit when I went for the... um, for the captions. I asked to come back. I asked to come back again. So I kept saying, somebody said, where are you going? I'm I'm going to the Mysterium. What's that? But that's what it was. I just gave it that nickname and it stuck. And it's so, it's so right. It's so perfect. So for some of these images, um, and again, you can find Into the Mysterium at Literati Bookstore, everybody. Um, the images, it looks as if the jellyfish is not in a, for example, um, this one one image. I think it's a jellyfish. It is. is it, it is. Because it could be something else. But um, it looks as if there's no glass separating you and the jellyfish. Fish. It's if you, as if you're in the same orbit with it, with your lens. I can't remember if this one was shot through a jar because we had figured out how to remove the glare um, with lighting and but that was the kind of thing that you can't put in a petri dish and you can't hold with tweezers and what do you do so we might have put up there a black backdrop and shake 
made the jar shake. Ah, to see the particles behind yes. it suspended. Yes. So the process of dealing with each one of these objects, these creatures, and seeing, what is this? Oh, it looks like glass. Well, maybe it is. Oh, yes, it is. It's silica. It, it's, what is this? Is it this? We, this kind of wonder kept going the whole week we photographed. And how did, and you said you had more than 400 images that you managed to capture. Yes. And how did you decide to make it 80 and to make it into an, because I should, I'd be amiss if I didn't say this is an accordion book that folds outward. So it's creating a certain type of experience for the viewer as you come to these images that are on both sides of the accordion. You know, we we did a very simple thing because I didn't I did this in two thousand six, and then I had to be very disciplined and put it away and get back to what I was supposed to be doing. So I laid it all. We sent every all the film to Snapfish and got a photograph, and then really? I laid it all out on my loft floor. And mm-hmm. thank goodness I have a big space. Right. <laughs> and then, as if I'm playing some kind of game, I started making relationships that had to do with pattern and color and texture and sequencing. And I lived with that for weeks. So anybody who came in had a tiptoe on my (laughs) floor to get to the desk. So certain connections became visible. And then I had an intern bind it in a book. And we ended up with two sides, you know, binded in an accordion book. And then I was working on another book, and Fighting Press came over to see the other book. And then they said, well, what's this? Oh, no, that's, don't look at that, I said. This is this other book. It was the publication of the Miami airport, which I have to do, and other projects that are installations no one has seen in Spain and Munich. So that was the book, the important book. This was the Mysterium, and I hadn't gotten there yet. Oh, no, they said. So I said, all right, all right, all right. I laid it out on the floor, and I had two of them. So I had uh, 160, and they just flipped. They said, this is so fantastic. Next week is market week. Can we... They look at each other, and my box that I put it in was coming apart. It was all a mess. You can imagine I'd been pulling it out and putting it back for years. Yes. And they said, oh, no, we'll take it just the way it is. And they made a box in their own prototype. No, I made the box. But you had the first box. I had it all. No, they took my prototype to market. Okay. Wow. That messy falling apart, the glue coming up, and Simon & Schuster bought 2,500 right off the bat and then the Japanese love this and got this so they called me up and said how soon can you be ready we're going to produce this so it happened so fast I I can't tell you (laughs) they produced 5,000 of them and it's just about gone and well it feels like something that's so important because it's you're trying to document somebody well someone's life's work like Nancy Voss as we said but this mysterious world that's all around us but that's disappearing yes because of pollution in our oceans because of global warming it's like 
you said earlier. It's another layered experience. Most experience is layered. It starts somewhere, and we add to it, and it develops, and it should, if it's something great, embrace all the senses. And you looked at the picture, and you could almost feel that jellyfish. And then you can—it's a sensory experience. And that also helped having a great camera and great— ability to concentrate there was nobody in there and it allowed me to penetrate her experience which curiously enough is filtered through her head and she complained bitterly that we photographed the jars from the wrong side so she couldn't see the labels and she couldn't tell us what was in it if she didn't see the labels and I kept saying to her but you know Really, Nancy, I'm an artist. I just want to see the thing. <laughs> and, well, I can't tell you what this is. I don't know, she used to say. She's so funny. Well, she's so precise, it sounds like. And so precise. Earnest. And earnest. So, But she never stopped me. She really mm. was affectionate. And you could see there's a wonderful poster that was designed to go with this book, that has the captions, so we never had to... I'm opening it up right now in the studio, <laughs> so you can see it. We never had to touch the beautiful photographs because, in order to give the information. Because here you have a poster, you have a map. A in, map. In the shape of a poster that you can see what everything is exactly, the right names. So Nancy could also be... Her, her view of it could be respected, Clearly. Well, I think it's the view. You know, if you name something, it has a different status in the world. A value. A value. And therefore, these need to be named and people need to know. I mean, these beautiful red things are black coral. Now, how that water got red, what was brought up in the net, she didn't know and I didn't know. But that's part of the mysterium. That's part of the mysterium. So... And then the most mysterious one is right here. There's a jar, let's see if I can find it, that had two here, two discs, two round circles of light. And oh. my photographer, my project manager said, oh no, that's the reflection from our lights. I said, no, I've seen them, they're in the jar. She said, I, th I don't know what those are. Those aren't anything, she said. So about three months ago, a new intern I have from Miami who wrote me a letter, knew my work, asked if he could work. He came to work, and after a week he said, you know, something might interest you. My mother lives in the Keys now, and she was fishing and caught a grouper, and when she cut it open, there's these strange platelets, and he took out his iPhone and showed me, and I gasped. Oh, that's what was in the jar. <laughs> oh, he saw my group, face. A grouper's platelets? A couple days later, he had, had talked his mother into relinquishing two of them, and that's what they are. So I went back, and I, when I told Nancy Voss what they were, 
she looked at me sharply and shook her head back and forth like, no, this is not relevant to that specimen in the jar. <laughs> this is something that got caught up and it's ancillary and we're not going to bother it. Meanwhile, the photograph of those two magical things, like two eyes, right. is so gorgeous. So it was such, it was such a wonderful journey. Well, it's been such a wonderful journey, even in the short time I've had talking with you, Michelle. Please come back, and we'll talk again. I'll be back. I always come back. And you're coming back, actually, um, this coming March, March is it? March 18th, there's going to be a symposium that I believe the Art History Department is going to produce because in 1963, it seems that the Museum of Art in Ann Arbor had the first pop show ever. Sam Sachs, who was a young uh, student then and became the director of the Frick, pretty amazing. St uh, now he's, he's fabulous. I still see him in New York. He went to the galleries and got the pieces, the Andy Warhols, the Rauschenbergs. So it was right here. Right here. The first here. pop show. So many things happen right here. Uh. So there's a wonderful person there who's putting it together and got hold of me. So I'm, I said, yes, I would come back and we would talk about what happened that year. Well, we'll see you in March, Michelle. You will see me March 18th. Today on Living Writers, you've been listening to a program with Michelle Oka Donor, Into the Mysterium, her photo book. Um, I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks for listening. Until next time. Everybody's talking at me The milkman, the paper boy, the evening TV. You miss your own for me. Beautiful, beautiful header right there. Snap looks into the end zone. Touchdown, Devin Funches. And the crowd here at Michigan Stadium loving it. Oh, Finally, the fruits of their labor paying off, absolutely getting a goal. It. Hello and welcome to the Daily Sports Report on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. We're on the air 10 minutes early here today. Thank you to Living Writers, the previous segment, for donating a little bit of their time to us. Just kind wow. of in an ad hoc fashion, but we appreciate the time. So thank you to T. Hetzel and the rest of the Living Writers staff for donating a little bit of the time. They had a pre-recorded show. So we get to jump right into the live Daily Sports Report. And exciting time in sports here. Game 7 of the World Series on tonight, first pitch at 8.08 p.m., Game 7. This will be the end of at least one or of one historic championship drought, either the Cleveland Indians looking to win their first World Series since 1948 or the Chicago Cubs with their winless streak in the World Series going back to 1908. So we will see one of these long streaks broken, the end of an era, and... It's been a thrilling series. So before we jump into Game Seven, let's look at what do you guys see? Uh, what do you guys see in this series so far? I, I guess I can get started. I'm going to be the grump of the show today, and I apologize for that. Uh, I actually work tonight all night, 
So I actually won't even be uh, watching the game. I won't be able to even like see it because I'll be uh, doing other things. So I don't know. I, I, I honestly am praying that it's just a blowout and it's not a fun game to watch because if it's a close game, it's just going to break my heart. Maybe if this extras, I'll be able to watch it. But this has just been a bummer of a day so far. So that's that's my take. Well, I'll just start by saying <clears throat> it doesn't get any better. Game seven of the World Series. Um, it really doesn't get any better than this. Game seven, the two best words in sports, in my opinion. Uh, nothing better than a game seven. Uh, but really, it, at the beginning of the series, the Indians had the advantage. They were playing a lot better. Um, didn't seem like the Cubs could answer. And then the Cubs, as they've had this whole season and throughout this playoffs, they've just had that clutch factor. And they've won big games. They've come up big when they needed to. And they're coming in with a lot of momentum tonight after the past two games. Uh you know, coming in after a 9-3 last night and then a close 3-2 win um, in Game 5 at Wrigley. So I think the Cubs have the advantage tonight, but with Kluber on the mound and Andrew Miller coming out of the bullpen for the Indians, anything can happen. So it's going to be an exciting game. It's going to be an exciting game tonight, and I really can't wait. Yes. Um, recently, recently, um, my roommate explained the rules of baseball to me, <laughs> which is fantastic. Um, I think there's no better time in, in history of in in history of baseball to to learn the rules of baseball so now I can watch the game tonight and actually understand what's going on and I feel it's it's going to be a really big one I'm I'm sorry about that dude but <laughs> it's, it's fine. yeah I'm getting paid at least it's it's whatever <laughs> so uh Maris can you tell us what your favorite part of baseball has been so far what's been most shocking just as an as a new fan of the sport my favorite part to be honest uh in comparison to all the other american sports is the the time you have to wait for a for a reward it's not like in basketball for example where you have basket 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 it's it's rather it's it's a little bit like in soccer to be honest you have to wait to wait and wait and it's a long sport Does and the you time have to wait you for the bit? reward and when you get it the whole stadium explodes the the atmosphere is fantastic i can imagine i i want to go to a game actually all right, well, as long as if I'm you're here. interested in going out of Cleveland, you have about two hours to get down there. <laughs> and tickets are only going for about $19,000 a piece. Yep. Oh, so, wow. Okay. So pretty cheap, cheap uh, to get in there. So. Yeah. WCBN budget, right? Yes, WCBN yes. will cover it. <laughs> that's that's part of it. So so looking forward, and we've done a little bit of a recap of the series so far, but looking forward to Game 7, who's going to be the real difference maker in this game? Obviously, Corey Kluber on the mound for the Indians, looking to be the first uh, pitcher to win three games in the World Series in quite some time. Uh, so who's going to be the difference maker? Can the Cubs' uh, bats stay hot, or will Kluber shut them down as he did in Game 1 and 4? I really think uh, Andrew Miller is going to be the difference maker tonight. I know uh, Kluber's starting for Cleveland, and he's going to give them five, six innings, but I think Cleveland's really they are going to want to get to an early lead, hope Kluber can carry them. You know, through, uh, through the fifth or sixth with that lead, with that lead, and then just ride Andrew Miller to the finish because that's kind of what they've done all playoffs. He's been their guy. That's kind of been their strategy. You know, get five six out of the out of your starter, and then let you know Andrew Miller throw three or four. Um, so I think if Cleveland's going to win tonight, they're going to have to ride Miller just like they've done. You know, the whole playoffs. He was the MVP of the ALCS. Um, and if they want to win tonight, he's going to have to be big just as just as he's been all playoffs. Let's look at the other side of the table. And I, I need some explanation as to what happened last night. Because I'm very I'm very frustrated 
with uh with with the Cubs and how how they've they've used Araldis yeah, Chapman. Chapman. Yeah, what they happened? Why why is he why was he in yesterday in a nine to three game? Because it's an elimination game. If you lose Isn't... that game, there's no game seven tonight. But it's one of those situations where you don't use him like you throw any other pitcher, and if they score two if or three runs, if it's nine to five, nine to six, then you put him in. Then you put him in. Yeah, but it's he... nine to three. Yeah, well, nine to three. Remember, game. he did come in before the Rizzo home run. It was still a tighter game. There's then two you men, take him out. Two, two out for the middle of the order. He did get that crucial out against Lindor, and then, and then he stayed. Then he stayed in the game. But I really, he only threw twenty pitches. That's not a big deal. That's, yeah, it's not that much. But still, he's gonna be ready still, to go I would today. rather him be well rested for Game Seven because he's gonna pitch at least two innings today I, for sure. I agree with Joe Mann's logic in that that's it's win or go home. If they lost that game somehow, blew that lead. They'd be going home, but and there'd you, but be a lot more. You've got to trust someone guessing. else to you, hold a nine exactly. to three lead, and like you can take Chapman out anytime or put him in anytime. It's nine to five, nine to six, not nine to three or yeah. whatever, eight to three, whatever it was before the home run. Well, once you take him out, you can't you can't put him back in. They, I believe it was seven three when he came in, mm-hmm. and there was two men on, so the the tying run was on the on deck circle, and for me, if you let any momentum get built there for the Indians, they can easily end the series if they get a little bit of momentum going. Maybe get a string together a few hits. Suddenly you have a tie ball game, and you might not even have a game seven. So I agree with Joe Madden. Well, where I agree with you is maybe okay in the ninth, you should bring in another guy. Take but out, eventually yeah. they eventually they did uh, after they got another pitcher warmed up with Rizzo's home run coming late in the inning. So with two outs in the ninth, right? Right, like, Rizzo, right. So they didn't have a really a lot of time to to get another pitcher warmed up. So I understand but in a lot. A seven, of, but what was it? Seven three at the time? Yeah, you should have someone else warming up. They have, yeah, because you should have someone else warming up. Because if you score more, then you know that you can get Chapman. You know, save him. Even if you're saving how many pitches, if it's ten or fifteen pitches, whatever you're saving, that's two days off coming that's into more today. rest that he has. Would have maybe another inning he gets to pitch tonight. In game I mean, seven. he he he's gonna pitch two innings regardless, probably. But right, am I wrong here? I think he's gonna pitch two innings unless tonight. the Cubs are dead. I think he's gonna, yeah, he's gonna pitch no matter what. If they're down, they're up. I would just rather him have two days rest, to be honest, and maybe get him in a in the seventh. I say it's winner, it's winner go home. They put their best pitchers in. Too often we see managers waiting and waiting not to put use their best pitchers, and finally uh, waiting until the ninth inning, and then we finally get to see them actually use the Elrellis Chapman before the ninth inning, before those clo- closing situations. Mm, I'm 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 gonna stick with my guns here, and I I just I, I hated that. I think what it does though is I think it might take away an inning from him tonight. I think he can only pitch two instead of three, because physically, yes, he could probably pitch three. But how good is he gonna be if he pitches three innings tonight? Because it does take a wear on your arm. It's the end of the season, you know, you're fatigued from a whole season of baseball. Yep. And now you know if he pitches, if that ninth inning tonight's his third inning. Of the game, mm-hmm. maybe he's not as good, yeah, as he could be. Exactly. Give him two day. Give him two days rest. Go ahead. Go ahead. Then again, today is the end of the season, right? And sure. he can get all out, and he doesn't have to worry about any but injuries. But that doesn't at mean all. that doesn't mean he's not tired from yesterday. Well, he, he he probably is, but I mean, how can you? How can tired can you be after you know, like in such a game? I mean, well, obviously, your, yeah, your body, a, your he body has is adrenaline and stuff on his side. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yeah. Like it's with, pumping. I love you, man. But with that logic, you could take both starters from yesterday. Why can't they come no, in? No, I understand what he's saying. I understand what he's saying. Season. You know, it's it's a big situation. Like, why can't you can squeeze one more inning out of him last night or one more inning out of him tonight? You know, they're not asking him to throw a whole another game. It's. I just think to me, they didn't need him. He wasn't needed. 
they have a fine bullpen in Chicago. Well, the debate was if he was needed. Sure, I, I would. I would just rather have him two two days off coming into today and give him three innings. All right, we will take this break right here at the top of the hour. All right, we uh, this is the Daily Sports Report on WCBN FM Ann Arbor, and just for our listeners, we actually got on the air ten minutes early thanks to Living Writers giving us a little bit of their time. So. Thank you to the Living Writers staff for donating a little bit of their time to the Daily Sports Report. But just at the top of the hour here, and um, we'll rerun our crew. I'm your host, Andrew Hausen. We also have Alec Lopez, Chris Pickler, and Marius. Uh, can you say your last name for me? Lex. Lex. Okay, gotcha. Yes, All very, right. Yeah, no worries. Very <laughs> Missed that, but that's our crew here today. And we're talking about World Series Game 7 right now. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, 734-763-3500. I already had... Uh, two calls in on our 10 minutes, so happy to have more more callers uh, calling in. Uh, if you want, we can even put you on the air. So um, feel free to share your feedback. Also, you can tweet at us, at WCBN Sports, for any feedback. We're going to be talking about the World Series, the Champions League, and uh, the first um, release of the college football playoff rankings. So exciting show here ahead in the next half an hour. Back to uh, what you guys were talking about, Game 7 bullpens. Um, I, I think I think I'm I'm all set with it. I mean I'm I don't like how it was used, but I say today give him give him the seventh, eighth, and ninth, regardless of the score. He's right. It's the end of the season. Let's end it on a high note. I'm praying for extra innings or a blowout because extra innings I can watch the game. Blowout I'm not gonna miss seeing it. But if it is a close game, I want Chapman in there for three innings. I'm gonna be really bummed out if this is if this oh. is a blowout. I want this one to go down. I'm sorry, to the man. Bottom of the ninth. And just be don't don't say extra, that. Extra, no, bottom, not yes. about the ninth, bottom of the fifteenth, yes. sixteenth, yes, twenty first, keep going. Okay, okay. Think about when is game seven ever a bad game? Like think about in any sport, all the game sevens you can remember. I can't think of a lot of bad. I mean, games. I can't think of a lot Spurs, of game sevens. Spurs. I can't think the of a one, lot of game the, sevens ever. Heat, okay, but I'm thinking like to be honest, Warriors Cavs was great. Um, I'm trying to think of some Warriors other Thunder, Warriors Thunder game seven. That was a good game. That was a good game. But I'm. But if you look, I mean, looking back in baseball wise, the Giants Kansas City was a pretty good game. Yeah, that when was Bob, a really good game. It was a really good yeah. game when Bob Rauner had to come in and throw three, four innings. I saw. I saw on ESPN they said nine of the last ten home teams in Game 